Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for joining us today in the Doctor's Lounge. You will hear conversations, important conversations that doctors have amongst themselves and between us and people that are important to how we do what we do. And in these days, that crowd is changing. Uh, we talk to lots of people to get our jobs done. We talk to nurses and we talk to administrators. And now more and more, we talk to health IT people, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. Uh, but here's the place that you come to really learn what's important to us, uh, physicians, how we get our job done, how we take care of you, the patient. So whether you're a physician or a patient, the things that you will hear here, I think, are important and I think worth uh, your time for this hour. So thanks again for joining us. The Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We are a 501c3 organization. We believe in free market approaches to the problems that are facing our healthcare system. Uh, we believe that the best thing that can happen to quality of care is to involve only about three or four things. That would be the patient, of course, uh, the physician, uh, a conversation, and most importantly, freedom. Freedom to choose the treatment that your doctor and the patient are most feel are most important. The freedom for the patient to choose what doctor they want for their care, what facility they want for their care, and when they would like to get their care. Uh, we welcome your donations. We have a website at uh, www.d4pcfoundation.org. Uh, please uh, visit our website and give generously. We appreciate every dollar that we get. No amount is too big or too small, and uh, we use that money. That money doesn't go to us. That goes to expenses. This show costs money uh, when we go and we talk to folks and try to spread the word and uh, and educate folks on what they need to know to make sound healthcare policy decisions. Uh, those are the things that cost money. So please rest assured the money that you kindly donate only goes to those expenses and to nothing else. So today we're going to spend the entire hour talking about things that are changing. Right? And we, this was billed in advance, the, the emails that you got in advance about the show are going to, are, are addressed towards the health information technology meeting that just went on a couple of weeks ago and sort of suggested we were going to talk about some of the new technology that comes out of that. That's not entirely accurate. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the social change that's happening, some of the change that appears to be happening both on the IT side and possibly, believe it or not, on the government side. And I've got some stories to tell over this hour that I think it's going to be worth your time to hear. Uh, so, you know, I'm grateful that you're going to stick around and, and listen to the entire hour, I hope. So uh, first, a little bit of introduction. Now, those of you who have listened to me behind this microphone before over below these 18 months plus, I guess in three months, it'll be two years that the Doctor's Lounge has been on the air at America's Web Radio. And you have heard me talk about some of the evils that have gone on, in my opinion, in the health information technology field. You have heard me talk about the unholy alliance between the health information technology community and the government that have produced, uh, you know, such maladaptive things as the meaningful use program and HIPAA regulations and some of these other things that make it harder, not easier for doctors to do their job taking care of patients, uh, that make the situation worse rather than be better, bend the cost curve up rather than down. And you've heard me preach about these things. You've heard me say that the, the technology itself, they, they've converted it, they've hijacked it and made it a Trojan horse to push big government, to push top-down health care, to push big data and population and health at the expense of 
quality of care for the individual. The care becomes less personalized, not more personalized. The, the thinking human beings, both doctors and patients, are forced to relegate freedom and control to the machines. And you've heard me talk about this time and again, and I still believe that that is largely true. But I'm going to outline for you today in this hour that there is a chance, a half-decent chance, that things are beginning to change significantly. And I'll go over for you why I think that's true. I think both on the government side, and I've got a story to tell there, on the health IT side with a story to tell there, and things are going to be happening uh, here in the next few days over the next week um, that I'll report on the next show, and, and we'll see if all this stuff comes to fruition. But there may be, I don't know what you want to call it, a paradigm shift, a sea change, pick whatever cliche suits you, but it could be that all of the assumptions that that we hold true about the evils of government and the the uh, you know lackadaisical outlook of the IT sector where the government's going to just pass laws so that they can sell stuff and don't really have to work to make good products all of which have been true to this point but you get the sense that maybe there's a bit of change that is happening with that. And so with that, let me go ahead and, and sort of begin to outline this for you. So before we actually get into the plot here, i got to give you a little bit of background. In the health IT community, there is a large organization called HIMSS. That's what they call it. H-I-M-S-S stands for Health Information Management System Society. That's sort of the parent professional organization, if you will, that sort of dominates the health IT sector. So this is, I'm not sure what to, to, to rate it to. If you're a physician, you have your professional society for your specialty. Um, if you're not a physician in whatever line of work that you're in, say if you're in broadcasting, there's the National Association of Broadcasters. Big organization. Um, and, and this is bigger than any medical society that you can possibly imagine. And they recently had their annual meeting. They just call it HIMS 16 uh, in Las Vegas, first week of March, kind of that week this year where February kind of went into March. And uh, that was in Vegas. It was for a whole week. Uh, and this is a big, big meeting. This is 40,000 some odd attendees. So it's a very big meeting. Now on the surface, uh, this meeting looked pretty much like any other one. But, but full disclosure up front, I made to say this a couple of sentences ago, I didn't go to the meeting. So I'm going to say stuff, and if you just kind of listen casually, you might think I was at the meeting. I wasn't at the meeting. I tried very closely to follow this meeting, this health information technology meeting, uh, by social media. And there's a whole conversation that we're going to have later in the show about how social media allows you to do these things um, without leaving your living room. Now, I'm not saying it's as good as being there. Clearly, it wasn't. But I got to talk to folks who were there. I got to network with folks who were there. So hear me out, and I, and I admit up front, full disclosure, I wasn't there. So so let's talk about that meeting a little bit. Um, this was a, you know, a big meeting, again, 40,000 people in Vegas, huge, huge thing. On, on the surface, you don't see much change, and you don't see much to be optimistic about. The, the, the whole billing of the meeting was interoperability, right? We talked about interoperability a couple of weeks ago when I was on the show last. This whole concept that the biggest problem in uh, healthcare right now is that electronic medical record systems can't push huge volume of data between silos. You know, Johns Hopkins can't communicate with Harvard. Intermountain can't communicate with Kaiser. And th th this is supposed to be the big problem. And we kind of went through some of why I don't think that's true. 
that that's not really the most useful definition of interoperability um, that, that actually benefits physicians who are boots on the ground treating patients. So this meeting starts off with how these meetings usually start off with, consistent with their close relationship with government. The keynote speakers are always high-ranking government administrators. And the first uh, keynote speaker, I think, was Karen DeSalvo, who got up and talked about uh, interoperability and introduced this new concept called the Interoperability Pledge, which we talked about last time. Again, in my mind, not a, a terribly impressive thing that they did. And uh, so on the surface, it didn't look like very much. So I kind of saw this coming, and I decided to use social media to um, try an experiment. Right? We've talked about experiments before, and we've talked about unexpected results. I thought, well, I'm going to try an experiment. Who knows? Maybe maybe I will get an unexpected result. So uh, it, it turns out just by luck of the draw, I had had an article published in a sort of online site called Physician's Practice. And anticipating that these folks were going to be gushing about interoperability at the 50,000-foot level, I wrote an article that said the interoperability crisis is basically getting man- manufactured. It's not a real interoperability crisis. It's manufactured. It's failing docs. And again, talking about how... The this big silo to silo 50,000 foot exchange of medical data doesn't help individual doctors and individual patients. And and the article starts with two examples from medical history. And we may have talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But there's two big examples of unexpected experimental results leading to breakthroughs in medicine. And the first one we talked about in the article was in, in 1928, Sir Alexander Fleming working in London, uh, was a bacteriologist. So he had a lab full of Petri dishes, growing bacteria, and he was studying those. So he goes away on holiday, he stacks all of his culture dishes in the corner, he comes back from holiday a month later, and discovers that one of his cultures is ruined because it's got a bunch of mold growing on it. Now, your first instinct is, oh, crap, got a bunch of mold on this thing, toss it in the wastebasket, right? Well, Sir Fleming was better than that. He decided to have a look at this culture disc and discovered that where the mold was growing, there were no bacteria growing. So, well, that's strange. Wonder what's going on there. Decided to study the mold. What was the mold called? Penicillin. What was the compound called? Penicillin. And the rest you know. Antibiotics radically changed history. Uh, you want another example? A drug called Viagra. Right, That was supposed to be um, a drug designed for chest pain and uh, hypertension. Turns out not to be good for those, but we all know what Viagra was good for. That was a, 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 an unexpected um, discovery, only because the observers were keeping their eyes open and they were willing to change their narrative. So my thesis in the article was that uh, health information technology has exactly the same problem. They've got their moldy culture dish that you, sitting right in front of them, that the interoperability message is not taking root. Because it's defined wrong. So I wrote this article, and, you know, there's lots of people out there writing articles. One thing about the Internet is that there's billions and billions of people, it feels like, writing these things. And so the question is, who, really, who is really reading them? Uh, and the answer is probably, for any single article, precious few. So I decided to run my experiment and see if I was going to get my unexpected results. So what did I do? Well, here's where the, the social media part comes in. 
So we'll talk about social media for a minute. Now, I don't know how you feel about social media. If you're under the age of 25, the stuff probably comes to you as naturally as, you know, falling out of bed in the morning or something like that. But, uh, you know, to those of us in our 50s, even if we're computer savvy, like I like to think I am, the whole social media thing did not come very easily. And so when Facebook came along, I did not understand why anybody would want to post, you know, what they had for lunch yesterday or, you know, the fact they're taking their kid to soccer practice or something like that. I, I was I was kind of lost on that. And then when Twitter came along, it was even worse for me personally because I could not understand why you would have anything intelligent to say in 160 characters or less. It seemed like Facebook but worse. I mean – it, it just didn't make any sense to me, and, and these tweets were going along, and you know I didn't understand why I even called it a tweet in the first place. So the whole social media thing escaped me until I started getting into it, and then when I ran this little experiment, things really started to take off. And we will talk about that in the next segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, the Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by the Doctor for Patient Care Foundation, a 501c3 organization dedicated to freedom of choice in health care. Uh, the Doctor's Lounge can be heard live on America's Web Radio on Thursdays and Fridays and, of course, can be picked up at the blog um, – or I'm sorry, not a blog, but a podcast uh, – uh, either through the uh, iTunes store or on the America's Web Radio website. So we were talking about, at the end of the first segment, uh, I was leading up to my, my Twitter experiment. And I was talking about the confusion that most of us who are in our 50s um, feel when confronted with this completely new, completely unanticipatable concept of, of this thing called social media. Uh, and first, Facebook was confusing. And if you thought that was confusing, look at Twitter. And uh, and so I've been tinkering with Twitter for a couple of years, never really doing very much with it, but growing the followers and following people and all this kind of things that you do, uh, you know, a complete explanation we don't have time to go into. But 
in brief, you know, if you if you tweet, if you put a little 160 character thing out there in the Twitter universe, along with a photograph or a link to an article or something like that, there are about three ways that you can get people's attention. One is if you have followers, anything you tweet, the followers will pick up. The second is that you can use these hashtag things, right? We've all heard about these hashtag cliches. And those things are if you tend like to follow a list uh, with an interest, uh, you know, like bicycling or something like that, then you can follow everybody who's, who's tweeting to the bicycling hashtag, for example. Um, and then the other is to use people's Twitter handles. And, a, and a, a Twitter handle is the equivalent of an email address. That's that little thing that starts with an at sign and puts something out. Out there and you say, well, so what? Well, what I didn't realize till I ran this little experiment was that you can reach out to people who've never heard of you. And if you get lucky, they will hear what you have to say if your timing is right. I mean, conceivably, you could reach out to the president of the United States if you know the right Twitter handle and it's not that hard to find. And, uh, you know, even with, you know, important famous people, they, they hire folks to follow their Twitter feeds. And who knows? You might get lucky like I did, as I'm about to talk about, and be able to reach out to somebody that's big and powerful in Washington and actually um, get an audience. Uh, so what happened? Enough background. So I was talking about this article um, that I had written about interoperability, and I had written it and I tweeted it on the eve of this big meeting of health information technology called HIMSS. Health Information Management System Society, huge meeting, 40,000 people. Anybody who's anybody in health IT is going to be out at this meeting, um, unless you're like me and you're a doctor and you can't afford to be away from work that long. So I followed it from home as best I could, as I talked about in the last segment, by social media. Because all you have to do is get on Twitter and you know put hashtag hymns, like I was talking about, where you can follow hashtags, and then you just watch that hashtag hymns feed, and you can pretty much pick up on you know, everything that's going on because everybody who's tweeting at the meeting about the meeting is going to tweet to that hashtag. So it's an easy way to follow things. And of course, the other is that, you know, over the years on Twitter, I've been, you know, blessed with, you know, making some connections and making some friends and being able to follow them. So when they tweet, I follow them. So I pick up everything that they have to say. So I had written this article about interoperability and how I thought that the the health IT's grand narrative on interoperability really wasn't uh, all that it was cracked up to be, and it needed to be redefined so that it was it would help the needs of the individual physician. Because I don't really care about interoperability between big silos. I don't really care if Johns Hopkins can talk to Harvard or Kaiser can talk to Intermountain. That doesn't help me one bit. What I need is the interoperability that lets me talk to the local lab, the imaging facility, the speech pathologist, the surgical facility, the places that I send in my relatively comparatively small world I need to be able to have back-end connectivity, interoperability, if you will, with those systems so that when I order a chest X-ray, all I got to do is click one button and the whole thing happens. And I don't have to tie up my staff filling out forms, chasing down results. It should all happen as efficiently as FedEx delivers a package. That's what's supposed to happen. That's the kind of interoperability that real doctors in the trenches need. Not that the other stuff's completely useless, but I don't think it's the lowest hanging fruit. It's not the highest priority. So I had written this article, and like I talked about, you know, you write an article, you put it somewhere, your own blog or somewhere else, and maybe a couple of hundred people read it if you're lucky because the whole Internet universe is so flooded with stuff that people are writing. Unless, unless you tweet your article 
and put a little sentence or two, that 160 characters, put a link to your article and say something like, hey, folks at HIMSS, why don't you talk about interoperability that actually helps doctors? And here's the link to my article. Well, the folks in IT that follow me picked this up, and they liked the article, thank heaven. And uh, and as a result, um, I got to follow the social media at this meeting at a much closer virtual distance than I would have been able to otherwise. And that resulted in me getting invited into something that is brand new to Twitter. It is still in beta testing, and it's this completely off-the-wall thing called a blab, right? As if Twitter wasn't confusing enough to those of us in our 50s, we now have to get our arms around the concept called the Twitter blab. That's B-L-A-B, B as in boy, like a blabbermouth, uh, that kind of spelling. So, so what is a Twitter blab? Well, imagine this in concrete terms first. Imagine that you're at a meeting and there's four panelists in the front of the room and there's an audience and one of those panelists is actually the moderator who's leading the discussion and so you have a discussion at the front of the room and you have audience members who are listening and asking questions. That's sort of the concrete equivalent of what's happening on Blab. So when you get on Blab, if you're one of the panelists, then you're one of the four faces that appear at the top of the page on your laptop or your tablet or even it works on your smartphone. And I've done more of these on my smartphone so far than any other piece of equipment just because I can drop what I'm doing wherever I else and and join a Blab. So we got on these blabs and started talking about all of these issues, some of which were related to the article I wrote, and obviously most of it was related to other more interesting stuff. But it gave me a chance to really develop these relationships with folks, and I got a a tremendous uh, education on where health IT stands on some of these issues. And remember, this now circle back to my original message in the first segment was that I think things are starting to change. And I told you they're starting to change in two very unlikely places. The first is in the health IT community, and the other is, and we'll get to this shortly, in the government, believe it or not. So we'll talk about the health IT. You know, I got to talk to some really, really smart people like Chuck Webster and Don Lee and and uh, and really get to learn from these folks what the contemporary thought is. And these aren't just folks that attended the meeting. These are thought leaders. These are uh, folks that have been designated by hymns as social media ambassadors. So they're leaders in the community, not just knockoffs sitting in a corner thinking something different than everybody else. I think that their opinions really do reflect what's going on uh, in the organization and in health IT. So what are the sort of things that I'm hearing? Well, some of the stuff that we've been preaching all along. That, that government regulations are intrusive, uh, that meaningful use is hurting more than it's helping, at least now. And there may be some agreement about whether or, what, whether or not it was a good idea in the first place, but that at least the time has come to look at backing off at the regulatory level. And I'm going to play some of these blabs for you in the third and fourth segment so you get to hear some of this for yourself and you don't have to take my word for it. But clearly listening to these guys over a couple of hours of worth of these blabs that run maybe 15, 20 minutes at a time before you have to knock off a lunch and go back to work or do whatever, uh, clearly the thought processes are changing. Clearly the emphasis is becoming less and less on Make the government you know, let the government make everybody buy this stuff, and we don't really care what's in it. But that it does have to deliver value. It does have to support what doctors do. It does have to support patients' needs, and uh, and it and it's really, really, really starting to come around. And today, um, 
I heard something even more remarkable because we did a blab at lunch, a little 20-minute blab at lunch today. And it was about uh, an article that had been written, uh, and one of the and the author was there to discuss it. He was one of the panelists that even talked about getting rid. Oh, I will say getting rid of. That's overstating. Reducing the role, reducing the influence of third party payers, and even saying that you can't measure quality if you have a third-party payer present because if you're not present for the service transaction, you can't measure the quality. There's only one way to measure quality, and that's to be there. And that's something that at Docs for Patient Care Foundation we've been preaching for the last couple of years. And you've heard this a million times before here, so it's not the, – the concept isn't new to us. What is new is where we're hearing it. And we're hearing it from the health IT community, which – you know, I felt up to this point had been, and I, and I think to this point I've been right about it. I think it's changing in front of our eyes right now, but that they were walking lockstep with the government towards the big government, intrusive, just make the doctors do it kind of paradigm. Uh, but now maybe things are starting to change, and I, and I think they're kind of getting sick of it. Uh, I think they're beginning to understand that you can only take that model of coerced demand uh, legislated demand so far before everything starts to get stale. And I think the true innovators, the folks that really are thinking outside the box as to how to improve healthcare, are becoming frustrated, and rightly so. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll play some of this for you in the third and fourth segments. I'm just going to, you know, play these blabs back and, and maybe interject some comments here and there. Uh, but I think you're going to, I hope at least, that you are as uh, impressed as I have been about what's going on so far. So it's really a remarkable thing. So two things. One is their point of view seems to be changing. And the second is that as I prepare for this meeting in Washington that I'll discuss in the fourth segment maybe, uh, where I'm actually going to get to meet with some of these folks uh, and on the government side who have also begun to at least profess to change their view, um, that they're they're really educating me. And I, I've been feeling – um, you know, over the last year or so, I mean, I know plenty from the doctor side and I know enough from the IT side, but not enough to really um, to go to Washington and, and, and profess to speak for both. Uh, and that's beginning to change. So enough on the health IT side. So now let's talk about what's happening on the government side. And some of this is going to be a retelling of a story that I've already told a little bit. So I'll beg your forgiveness ahead of time. Uh, but now, you know, there's another storyline, another thread that I've got to build so that we can bring all these things together. So um, this story involves um, CMS, uh, involves the acting administrator. His name is Andy Slavitt. And uh, he had made some remarks uh, back in early February to a J.P. Morgan you know, group of investors and had said that meaningful use was going away and that it was going to be replaced with something better. Well, that sent everybody into a tizzy, of course, uh, and as if that wasn't enough, then he gave an interview the next day and said, I think we're losing the minds, the hearts and minds, I think we're losing the hearts and minds of physicians, and we need to do better. We need to recapture the hearts and minds of physicians if we're going to get the job done. Well, that sent everybody into a really crazy tizzy. Now, there were some articles that came out within the next couple of days that walked that back a little bit and said, no, meaningful use isn't totally going away. We're going to morph it and, and not call it meaningful use anymore. It's going to be a part of a new bill called MACRA, which was the SGR bill that was passed, uh, and part of a merit-based uh, a payment system that, that Medicare is going to have. 
but anyhow, we will pick this up uh, in the third segment. We'll continue to talk about the things Andy Slavitt said and how I got myself a meeting with his people in Washington next week. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for joining us today. The Doctor's Lounge is heard on America's Web Radio and is available by podcast. Uh, at the America's Web Radio website or in the Apple Store. So to pick up uh, where we left off at the end of the last segment, we were talking about how times might be changing and that you know some of the, the bitter complaints that we have had about how the, uh, the alliance between the health IT community and government has really hurt the vision for information technology to revolutionize healthcare in a positive way, uh, that maybe some of these issues are beginning to turn in favor of doctors and patients, and that maybe uh, we need to be as open-minded as we think they need to be. Uh, that uh, that as change as times change, we need to change our opinions along with it, and that maybe. And again, I'm not letting my guard down totally. Don't get me wrong. This is not a you know happy days are here again. You know, hopping and skipping and jumping down the yellow brick road. Um, I still. Uh, I'm looking at all of this with a jaundiced eye, but at the same time, you have to give it a chance. Um, you can't let the cynicism of the past um, deprive us of an opportunity that may or may not be sitting right in front of us. 
And there are folks among the physicians um, that I communicate with um, occasionally uh, that have suggested that all of this is a hoax, that all of this is uh, a lark, that all of this is nothing more than political subterfuge. And I'm not saying that's impossible. It, it might still be true. All of this might be a game that somebody's playing, but it might not be. And I think you have to give it the chance. You have to allow for the possibility that all of this is real because if it is real and we miss the opportunity because of anger and cynicism, then uh, then this becomes our problem and uh, it, it's on us, not anybody else. So with that thought in mind, let's circle back. We had talked about things changing. We had talked about things changing in the IT community. Uh, we had talked about how I had the privilege – uh, through the kindness of folks in the IT community whom I know through social media to include me in some of their conversations through a technology called Twitter Blab, which if you didn't hear the last segment is nothing more than a virtual sort of town hall meeting or, or meeting with a, with a panel uh, at the front of the virtual room and an audience uh, farther back that uh, all communicate virtually in the same way they would if they were in the same room. So very interesting sort of electronic format that allows people to get together who would never uh, be able to do so otherwise. And, and, and I've learned, I've had the privilege of learning through these folks that I know uh, Chuck and Don and Shalid, you know who you are, uh, about uh, how, how health IT is thinking and that they're coming around. And, and, and instead of disagreeing, it looks like we're all beginning to agree, which is very exciting. Uh, there's another part to this, and remember we've, we've talked about uh, health IT. We're talking about government now, so we'll shift gears a little bit, um, that even some folks uh, on the administrative side at CMS – um, may be changing their minds as well, or maybe changing their minds is probably too strong a term. Uh, that 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 uh, their outlook's evolving. They're looking at it with a perhaps a more um, objective viewpoint. But let me go ahead and just and, and tell the story. Um, Andy Slavitt is the acting uh, administrator at CMS. He's the top of the chain over there. And um, he made some comments first to J.P. Morgan and then uh, an interview the following day saying things like, number one, meaningful use is going away, and number two, that uh, the hearts and minds uh, of physicians, uh, you know, CMS is losing the hearts and minds of physicians. He said, we're losing the hearts and minds of doctors. We need to do what it takes to get them back. And all these comments sort of set the physician IT community on our ear. We were – some of us were elated and overjoyed and other of us were a bit more cynical. And so um, uh, as we were discussing this, then the HIMSS meeting happened, this big health information technology meeting happened, and Andy Slavitt was one of the speakers out there, as you would expect, because these meetings usually have keynote speakers as high-ranking government officials. Usually I've – always sort of ragged on that and said it's a bad thing, but maybe that's not true anymore either. So I'm going to read some excerpts from the published um, speech of, uh, of Mr. Slavin. And, uh, you know, in, in case I screw this up as I'm reading this, I mean this to be complimentary uh, because I do like some of the things that he's saying. So I'm just going to take some excerpts here, and I wish I could pull these from YouTube and let you hear it in his voice instead of mine, but... It's not there, and I don't know how to get it. So here we go. So uh, going into the speech, he, he says – this is now Andy Slavitt talking. We are now seven years into the concerted launch of a truly national health information exchange or technology platform. Um, always a good time to see how it's going. Uh, he says, I am not bashful about saying what we, CMS, needs to do better, and I'm not going to be bashful um, – even in the face of some very good reasons for optimism, to the point where we all need to take our game up, 
right? Implying that although, you know, coerced demand has it worked well at some level to at least get health information technology out there, which, by the way, I don't agree with, but it's done and it's behind us. But he says, we've all made a great start, but we're still at a stage. Now, listen to this. We're still at a stage where technology often hurts instead of helping. Physicians provide better patient care. And we, CMS, is committed to taking a page out of consumer technology playbook and taking a user-centered approach to designing policy. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I would not be expecting your average, you know, government fat cat to be saying stuff like this. Right, we've, we've created a new playbook at CMS by making our most concerted effort ever our most concerted effort ever at listening to frontline physician and patient input up front. And he talks about a four-day session. He went out on the road, right? He got out of his comfy little office inside the Beltway and actually went out to the trenches of healthcare. if you take his story at face value, and I see no reason not to, uh, and talked with eight focus groups, frontline physicians in four separate markets, and he actually brought quotes to his speech, from six physicians, uh, and none of them are complimentary about health information technology. So this is gutsy. This is cool. I, you know, this is this is not something I would expect. So you know, here's some of these quotes. Right? Um, these are this is Andy Slavitt, top of CMS, reading quotes from doctors about how EMR stinks. So I'll read a couple of these. EMR puts too much of a burden on us physicians and does take away our time from caring for patients. Right, nobody's EMR talks to anybody else's EMR, and the systems don't talk to each other. It's actually the opposite. If one of the EMRs I used, I can't even access it at the hospital because of the firewall. So security getting in the way of of getting the job done. Uh, and there's there's more of these. Um, oh, here's a good one. To order aspirin in their EMR takes eight clicks. To order full strength aspirin takes sixteen clicks. That's not patient care. That's not patient care. It's clicks. Right. The problem I have is I can see less patients in a day based on all of the stuff I have to do with a computer, and that's really killing me. So you get the idea. He's reading some pretty hard-hitting quotes from angry doctors uh, at a meeting which typically, historically, has been you know one big happy rainbow and everybody's happy and everybody's great and isn't this wonderful that we have the government you know forcing doctors to buy our products uh, and and this was kind of a you know as you read the speech kind of a big reality check so you know kudos to Andy Slavitt for reading this stuff I mean you know I never thought I would find myself uh, behind this microphone giving these kinds of compliments to a high ranking CMS bureaucrat but you know you got to give credit where credit's due. And again, I'm not dropping my guard here. I'm not saying that just because, you know, they go up and, and, you know, read a speech like this one time that everything's changed and that, you know, 50 years of government oppression towards physicians is suddenly over. Far from it. But wherever the cracks of sunlight come through the clouds, we got to go and see what's going on. So as a result of all this, and he says, I've got hundreds of these. He's got hundreds of doctor quotes, didn't cover them all in the speech, of course, but said, okay, there's going to be three things they're going to go after. They're going to go after interoperability. Um, they're going, they've at least acknowledged that regulations in their current form slow down doctors, create documentation burdens, and are distracting from patient care. Right? Third, the doctors find EMR technology hard to use and cumbersome. 
slows doctors down. So really, you know, kind of hitting these folks hard, which is good. And he talks about how, at least in theory, on paper, that they're going to try to lower the documentation overhead associated with meaningful use, that they're going to stop measuring clicks and focus instead on technology becoming a tool. And, uh, you know, you read this whole thing and you say, okay, you know what? You take it at face value, it's not so bad. Now, the end of the speech goes into this interoperability pledge, which does not impress me in the least, but fine. You take what you can get, and, and you know, again, I remain very impressed with the speech. So I'm watching all this happen from my little house in Atlanta here, uh, and I decided to run another little social media-based, Twitter-based experiment. Right? I told you about the first one. I published that article. I tweeted it with a link and got some attention from folks in, in health IT that I greatly admire, um, that I'm, I'm proud to call them mentors even at this early stage, and I hope they're okay with that. Um, and, and, then, and then we have this second experiment. So what was the second experiment? Well, as a result of all this stuff that Mr. Slavitt has written, I decided to write him an open letter and post it on my blog. And it was a rather strongly worded letter, and some of my mentors that I'm talking about in the health IT side didn't think it was a very good idea um, to the point where they probably appropriately distanced themselves from it a little bit. Um, but I'll read a little bit from the letter. Dear Mr. Slavitt, no doubt you were surprised at the strong reaction of some of your comments recently, yada, yada, yada. Um, and I said that some of us doctors reacted like starving prisoners when the commandant announces that there will be extra cockroaches for dinner. Uh, again, sort of a metaphor for the regulatory oppression. Um, but I said, so some of us were overjoyed, like starving prisoners. Some of us were very cynical. Right. Some of us were saying, and I've already talked about this a couple of minutes ago, saying, look, this is all political subterfuge. This is all BS. This is all garbage. Don't believe a word of it. So there was a, a two-pronged reaction inside the doctor community. So in the letter, I say, well, Mr. Slavitt, what are your intentions? Are you for real? Are you sincere? Or are the cynics right? If you are sincere, then we're reaching out to you and saying – Look, let's work together. Let's do something together and really and create something special. But if, if this is all BS and garbage, then consider us your enemies. That's pretty much the letter. And again, anybody can post an article on their blog. Anyone can write a letter and stick it on a blog. Who's going to read it? Well, a few faithful people might read it, but you're not going to get a whole lot of attention unless, and again, if this sounds like history repeating itself, unless you tweet it, put a link on it, and put Mr. Slavitt's handle on it. And maybe somebody like him is high enough in government to make a difference, but his name's not so widely recognized that his Twitter feed is totally overloaded, right? If you tried to do that with your favorite celebrity or the president, well, their Twitter feed's probably so overloaded with people trying to do the same thing, it's not going to get much attention. But here, I got lucky. Within two hours of putting the letter on my blog and putting it online, I had a response from Mr. Slavitt. And uh, I will go into that uh, as we begin the uh, final segment of the show. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks so much for sticking with us all the way through the fourth segment. We intend to make it worth your while, so thanks very much for sticking with us. Um, as we begin the final segment of the hour, um, let's just catch up on where we were. Um, I was talking to you about the second of my two Twitter experiments, which was to write this open letter to a very high-ranking administrator in CMS, one uh, Mr. Andy Slavitt, and had written him an open letter, which I talked about in the last segment, which basically said, basically said, look, you've said some very interesting things over the past couple of weeks. Um, are you serious? Are you sincere? Uh, if you are, uh, then let's work together because we have a group of doctors that are are learning what needs to, who have learned the skills to be effective participants in, in, in writing policy. So please let us help you if you're sincere. If not, then we're never going to be on the same page. And so we kind of left it as a teaser at the end of the segment, what happened? And uh, because we had tweeted the letter and put a link and put Mr. Slavitt's handle on it, he got it and he read it and he responded to me within a couple of hours. Uh, very thoughtful, very nice response. He says, uh, you know, very thoughtful letter likely reflects the views of many doctors. Um, I'll share it internally because culturally people need to see the gulf between policy ideas and the front line of medicine, which is a great way of putting it. And we've said this before on the show. I mean, it's easy for folks inside the beltway to sit inside big marble buildings in a relative vacuum and think that they can guess what's going on out in the real world and write laws and write policies that actually help. Uh, and those of us in the trenches of medicine know that that process usually, uh, uh, you know, almost always doesn't work because so many things happen between good ideas and good intentions in Washington, D.C., and what happens when it's a doctor and a patient in an exam room that uh, that process doesn't work. So he goes on to say, I believe all the fatigue and the laws we still need to implement in the current state of technology means it will take some time before differences are felt where they matter. Implementing laws like MACRA is a complex undertaking, but the core of what you said, 
I believe is the most important thing. It all begins with listening. Uh, and the rest of the letter kind of goes on, uh, and, and, but very nice. And then, you know, he did share the letter internally. I got two other email responses from other folks on his team, uh, Patrick Conway and Kate Goodrich. And Ms. Goodrich, I'm going to meet with next week, along with the physician engagement team, which I presume she leads. Uh, and their comments were as follows. Um, we both inherited Patrick and Kate Goodrich, um, Patrick Conway, Kate Goodrich, the Meaningful Use Program six to 12 months ago. So an interesting thought. I never heard thought of that this before, but it makes sense. Is the folks who are administering this program now didn't invent it, didn't create it. They inherited it, which is a completely different perspective. Uh, it may have a potential to give them more open minds to discussion uh, than the folks who created it, who I would presume – have a much more emotional attachment to you know the law as it was um, originally written. They go on to say, we do think, we do think the macro legislation provides an opportunity to transform the program, lessen the burden, and make much more simple and flexible to meet doctors' needs. Happy to take your ideas and input uh, anytime, and thanks for your work. So I looked at that and said, okay, I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going to take a day off work, and I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. And, and take a chance. I'm going to invest a day of work and expenses to get up there, which, believe me, is no small investment. I mean, as we've talked about um, on this show, you know, doctors are like plumbers. If you're not under a sink fixing a leak, there's no money coming in, and yet the overhead continues uh, you know, without interruption. So it's a significant investment to go up there for a day, but uh, I, I think it's something we have to do, and, and just like we talked about before. Um, these are things that got to happen, and, and I, I can't walk away from an opportunity like this. Uh, and I, I promise you I will be back behind this microphone as soon as I can to report um, what goes on up there. So we'll see. So, you know, two um, – Twitter experiments, one fairly high risk. Um, you know, I will tell you one of my new mentors, uh, uh, Chuck Webster, did not like that letter I wrote, and that's okay. Uh, you know, he has good reason not to like it, and uh, there's good reason to believe maybe I took an undue risk in writing such a strongly worded letter, but, uh, you know, be that as it may. Um, yeah, for the rest of the time that we have, some nine minutes or so, um, I want to share with you some of what happens on these Twitter blabs. Uh, and these three segments come from a conversation between three of my favorite people in this new blab universe, Chuck Webster, uh, who is a big workflow guru whom I've known off and on uh, for a couple of years through Twitter and tweeting stuff back and forth. Uh, now I've gotten to know him a whole lot better, thankfully. Uh, and uh, Don Lee, uh, who also uh, works for a health IT uh, firm but has really taken the lead uh, on this uh, uh, Twitter blab thing and Shahid Shah, who is also a heavy hitter and a um, a what did they call them social media ambassador for him. So three really intelligent, really high powered people that I am privileged uh, to know and to uh, you know to call them you know, nascent friends and mentors. And, and I hope that relationship with each of the three of them uh, continues to go on as I go to play these. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not gush a bit and give my gratitude to these guys for uh, for helping me along and, and giving me a fund of knowledge in an area which I really, really did need it. So let's listen to these segments here. We've got, what, about uh, seven minutes left, which ought to be just enough time. So the first thing, remember that Chuck Webster, he's going to talk first, and, and he is a real workflow guru. And so he's going to make some comments that basically says, look, there is no reason why 
um, our electronic medical record systems can't be really nimble in terms of workflow. That means uh, the ability to put pieces together in the guts of the virtual machine so that when you want that chest X-ray, like we talked about a couple of segments ago, that you click a button and it happens. And it happens as efficiently and as quickly uh, and as automatically as sending a, a FedEx package. So here we go. Or so, computationally, computationally malleable enough to bend to your will so that when you, you, know, you go native through participant observation and you really learn the domain well or you bring the, the users back over to the software factory so that they can inform things, if the, if the software you have has frozen workflows – that is, it, the workflows are basically if-then statements and case statements and mumps and Java, and they are not uh, workflows stated at a level of abstraction that can be understood by the users, changed by the users, and yet be still executed by the engines. As, as long as you don't have a malleable and instrumented substrate out of which to create the software tool, it doesn't matter. Your, whatever you put out there is going to have frozen workflows. The world will change. Regulations will change. Technology yeah, will change. Yeah, yeah, you see what I'm saying? And this is, this is why I keep shifting back. We need to move from data-centric frozen workflow, system, frozen workflow systems to process-aware workflow-centric yeah. systems. Okay, so try to, try to get through the complex sort of IT nerdy jargon there because it is it, it, it does get a little bit technical there but the bottom line is his point is that uh, that there's no way that a vendor can build and hardwire workflows into an EMR right workflows being the way you get things done steps to get things done uh, there's no way that a vendor can pre-hardwire those in advance every practice is different and these systems have to be totally flexible so that you can not only Easily customize the workflow to your needs, but but do it without having to write code and do all of this uh, stuff. So, um, the next uh, segment is going to talk about, you know, a- as we begin to add things to add features to EMRs and add them. Uh, there's two ways to do it. I'm getting a little off track here. There's there's two ways to make EMRs better. One is to blow the whole thing up and start over. Which doesn't work because each of us is, you know, invested six figures into the EMR system. The other one is to ease the regulations coming out of Washington so that they can have, you know, open interfaces to these EMRs so that third party vendors can plug things into the EMR that you already own. Just like you add apps to your smartphone. Right. This is that's probably the best way to understand it is you you buy your smartphone. It's got some basic functionality, but you're able to choose from hundreds of thousands of apps to really customize that phone and make it yours and serve your needs. And there's no way that there's no reason, I should say, that the same model shouldn't apply to electronic medical record systems. So let's listen to this. Who's willing to buy those kind of systems versus uh, the systems that they're buying today? I, I would imagine that there are going to be a lot of people who want to buy the next generation systems as they're starting to see the flaws and the holes and the issues in their current, whether it's MU1, 2, or 9 certified, what does it doesn't really matter. So do you, do you think that, uh, you know, Mike, from your side, and, and uh, Don, what are you seeing? Uh, are people looking to buy these next generation systems, or are we just talking about it in an echo chamber? Uh, but really, people are just going to buy what's out there. They're going to use it as best as they can and then fill the holes on their own. Well, you know, one thing that the, the health IT industry as a whole doesn't seem to understand is that once you've bought a system, you're pretty much married to it. 
You know, in 2013, was it that, you know, the, uh, the, the marketing verbiage was, oh, this is the year to buy a new system. And I'm thinking, buy a new system? Have you lost your mind? We got, you know, deep into six figures, you know, installing and maintaining the system we have. So the idea that we're going to trash what we've got and get another one, you know, knowing that the outgoing vendor is going to be hostile. That doesn't work. But it would work as an add-on. It would work as a plug-in. And if, if you could come up with something that was a workflow management plug-in that would interface with your system at the blessing of the, your parent vendor, that's probably the problem. So there you go. That's, uh, you know, the, the, the conversation on plugins. So this is the beauty of this Blab technology. So uh, we're running a little short on time. I'm going to jump right into the very, very, very last one, which is where I asked these guys, look, I'm going to Washington week after next to have the meeting with Slavit's team and CMS. So what do you, what do you guys think I should tell them? And listen to this carefully. They want the same sort of backing off of regulations. These guys have come around 180 degrees and said, we don't, we want the government out of our hair just like the doctors do so i got to go in a couple of minutes let me throw one question here to the brain trust before i go i got this trip to dc in a couple of weeks is there any of this that would be intelligent to bring with me or or put as a part of the ask is there any potential to take this interoperability pledge or some of this new requirements for open apis and try to leverage that towards getting a little bit of help from inside yes you in the back row. okay i got it yes <laughs> Okay, here's the thing. Okay, believe it or not, uh, in one of the slides... This is Chuck Webster. ...technical uh, committees advising CMS and ONC, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a slide on, should we make workflow engine technology a meaningful use requirement? Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. And, and, okay, I do not want to see what happened to APIs and what happened... Or I do not want to see what happened to usability. Yeah. because of government mandates right. via subsidies happen to workflow technology or to the API world uh, you know and I have to, you know I'll have to say uh, you know could you please just tell them the hands off no, I would back tell off. Them hands off so how about that so now you're hearing from the health IT community hands off back off just like doctors have been saying. So, you know, an interesting thing here in the last 20 seconds, we'll try to sum it up. Uh, we have change coming from the government side. We have change coming from the health IT side. So what's happening? Is it real or is it all just political subterfuge? Well, hopefully I will find out when I go to Washington, D.C. next week, and I will let you know. Uh, you have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. See you in two weeks. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.